Good morning, Gospel Hope. And today I'm excited to once again move forward in our series on the life of David called It's Complicated. Uh, let me bring you up to speed to where we're at today if you haven't been following along in the messages. Um, first week, we learned that the fact that David was anointed to be the future king of Israel. Well, after that happened, he went back to tending sheep until this tragedy occurred in the nation and the Philistine army came up against the army of Israel. David went to visit the battlefront, and as you know what happened, David not only faced, but slew the giant Goliath. This brought him to the attention of King Saul, and Saul became enamored with the young servant David, and he became part of his army and a trusted confidant. That is until the people began to prefer David over Saul. That's captured in that little ballad we saw last week in our sermon, Saul has slain his thousands, while David his tens of thousands. This drove Saul into a rage, and from that day forward, he began to seek to end David's life. We concluded the passage of Scripture last week with Jonathan, the son of King Saul, warning David that Saul was going to kill him. So David flees out and goes into the wilderness and spends the rest of his life before Saul passes away being a fugitive from Saul and an exile from his homeland. And the title of the message today is simply this, The Fugitive. And what I want to do as we unpack this scripture is learn how we can navigate life in a way that honors the Lord, even when our authorities are bad or evil or corrupt. That's certainly what happened to David's life. And I hope that we can glean some valuable lessons from that as we look at this lengthy passage of scripture today. So will you just pause with me for a moment before we dive into the text and ask the Lord for his help. Father, we are so thankful for who you are. We're thankful preeminently for the work of Jesus. And I pray today that as we open your word, we would see Christ, that your spirit would be moving in our hearts and we would learn how better to navigate difficult situations like David found himself in. Oh Lord, would you draw our attention to the greatness of Jesus. In his precious name we pray, amen. You know, when I was a kid, probably about 10 or 12 years old, my favorite show was the A-Team. I think there was some sort of unwritten requirement that if you were a boy, 10 to 12 years old, during that time frame, the A-Team had to be your favorite show. I mean, it was everything that a little boy could want. And the theme of this show was essentially this. The A-Team, four people, Hannibal, Face, B.A. Baracus and, of course, Howling Mad Murdoch were soldiers and they were committed of a crime that they, or accused of a crime that they didn't commit. And so they became fugitives. And the plot of every story was essentially this. While they were running from the authorities, while they were running from the corrupt bad guys, they were helping people along the way. I bring this up because that's essentially the plot of 1 Samuel chapter 21 through 31, where David has been run out of town by King Saul, and he's living as a fugitive. But David's not just kind of hanging out in the wilderness, keeping his head down. He's actually, during that time, doing good and gathering to himself a band of followers. And he makes harrowing escape after harrowing escape from Saul during this time. While there's certainly no way we can exhaustively cover 10 chapters in our short time together, 
I think there are some extremely relevant principles that we can learn from looking at this passage of scripture this morning. And I wanna point out two of them before we dive into the text in a little more detail. The first one is this, authority is inescapable. You see, even though David is the God-ordained, anointed, rightful king of God's chosen people, he was still under authority. And the same is true for you and I. No matter what our stage, season, or status in life, we are never outside of authority. Sometimes young people have the notion that when they get grown, they'll no longer be under somebody's authority. And while their relationship with their parents may certainly change, grown folks have jobs, which means they have bosses. And bosses pay taxes, which means they're accountable to the government. And government officials are often elective, which means that they are accountable to the people who put them in office. And ultimately, no matter how lofty your position, no matter how high your standing in culture, everyone is accountable to God. The truth is, we all have to answer to someone. As Hebrews chapter 4 verse 13 says it very plainly, No creature is hidden from him. But all things are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. So if you're a human being living in this world, you are accountable to someone. Authority is inescapable. But not only is authority inescapable, authority is also imperfect. Until the Lord returns, there is no such thing as a perfect authority. Government officials are corruptible. Employers are fallible. Pastors are sinful. I, I know, you're terribly shocked by that reality. And even parents who have the best intentions are not all-knowing. Every teenager in the room has said the loudest amen I've ever heard from them at any time in the world. But what this means is that some point in time, maybe today, you are going to be treated unfairly by an imperfect authority. This reality is only heightened by the fact that we are right now in the United States of America in an election year. It seems that currently everyone is focused on the imperfections of one potential authority or another. It is very plain for all of us to see that not only are we under authority and authority is inescapable, but also that authority is imperfect. So what do we do with this? What do we do with the reality that all of us live under authority and those authorities are far from perfect? We need to learn to navigate life even when we are treated unfairly because it's going to happen. You are going to get the short end of the stick. Somebody over you, somebody that has authority in your life is not going to treat you the way you want to be treated. So how as believers do we navigate the obstacles that this life throws our way. This brings me to my simple point this morning, which is this. We must trust the Lord even when we are mistreated. We must trust the Lord even when we are mistreated. And that's why this passage here in 1 Samuel chapter 21 through 31 is so helpful for us. Because in this story, we see David. He, he's the anointed king. He's the rightful heir to the throne. And he doesn't, hasn't done anything wrong. And yet Saul is treating him terribly, even seeking his life. In some passages of scripture, it seems like Saul has totally lost his mind. And yet in the midst of this, David is seeking to honor God. 
So what I want to look at this morning is four reasons or four ways that we can do right when our authority is wrong. Four ways that we can do right when our authority is long. So let's jump right in. The first one is simply this. Reduce your risk. After Jonathan warned David that Saul was intent on killing him, David did something very natural. He ran. He took off. He got himself out of that situation. Look at 1 Samuel chapter 22, verse number 10. David fled that day from Saul's presence. Now, perhaps this is so obvious, does it, does it need to be stated? But the reason I bring it up is because I want to dissuade anyone from the notion that it is somehow intrinsically ungodly to remove yourself from a dangerous position. Well, there are certainly occasions where God's people were called to stand and suffer terrible treatment. And I think about Daniel in the lion's den, or the stoning of Stephen in the New Testament, or the martyrdom of, Fili of Perpetua and Felicity in the early history of the church. There are also many examples of people who were put in harm's way, and out of trust for the Lord, they fled the situation. Moses fled to Egypt to avoid the wrath of Pharaoh. Rahab rescued her family by hiding the Israelite spies and ducking and covering when the army came to town. The Apostle Paul fled the Jews in Damascus by being lowered out of a window in a basket and Joseph protected the baby Jesus himself from King Herod by taking him out of Bethlehem and down to Egypt. The application is simply this for us. If you have an authority who is seriously abusing their power, there are times when it is wise and even godly to remove yourself from the situation. Young person, if an adult in your life is behaving in a sexually inappropriate way towards you, no matter what they say, you are not trapped or stuck. You can please God and remove yourself from the situation. Women, if you are being physically harmed by a man who is abusing his power, it is not ungodly to remove yourself from the situation. Employee, if your employer is treating you poorly just because they have been good to you in the past or they gave you your start, that doesn't mean that it is ungodly to remove yourself from the situation. Listen to this statement very carefully. Sometimes it is godly to remain other times, it is godly to run. And we need the Spirit's help to discern that. But I wanted to bring this up because sometimes we have the idea that I always need to stand. I need to die on every single hill. But that's not the picture that is painted for us here in this passage of Scripture or in every place in the Bible. We need to remember that it is not intrinsically ungodly to get yourself out of a dangerous situation. So that's the first tactic that David employed reduce your risk. Here's the second one. This one's a little bit a little bit more counterintuitive and it is this. Respect your opponent. Man, although David left Saul's court, the king was not willing to let things lie. You would think that Saul would just say, "Okay, David's out of the picture. Fine. I'll just let it go." But in fact, as you read through this section of scripture, 
Paul is often found out hunting David down, like he's chasing him to the ends of the earth. Look at 1 Samuel chapter 23, verse 14. David then stayed in the wilderness and strongholds in the hill country of the wilderness of Ziph, and Saul searched for him every day. But God did not hand David over to him. Or again, in 1 Samuel chapter 23, verse 24. Now David and his men were in the wilderness near Moan and Arabah, south of Jeshimon. Saul and his men went to look for him. When David was told about it, he went down to the rock and stayed in the wilderness of Moan. Saul heard of this and pursued David there. Saul was relentless in his pursuit. He kept chasing David no matter where he went. And a couple of times, because Saul was chasing him so doggedly, they got within striking distance. But here's the thing. On both of these occasions, when Saul and David came face to face, David treated Saul with respect. Even though he had the opportunity to kill him. Look at 1 Samuel chapter 24, verse number 2. So Saul took 3,000 of Israel's fit young men and went to look for David and his men in front of the rocks of the wild goats. When Saul came up to the sheep pens along the road, there was a cave there, and he went in to relieve himself. And David and his men were staying in the recesses of the cave. Bad place to take a potty break, Saul. He goes in. David's in the back of the cave, and look what happens. Then David got up and secretly cut off the corner of Saul's robe. Uh, after Saul traveled the distance from the cave. So he gets out of the cave and David reveals himself and stands up and hollers over to Saul. And he says this, my Lord, the king. And when Saul looked behind him, David knelt low with his face to the ground and paid homage. Here's a sign of respect again. David said to Saul, why do you listen to the words of the people who say, look, David intends to harm you. You could see with your own eyes that the Lord handed you over to me today in the cave. Someone advised me to kill you, but I took pity on you and said, I won't lift my hand against my Lord since he is the Lord's anointed. So even though Saul is trying to kill David, David is treating his enemy with respect. Then a similar instance happens just a couple of chapters later. Look over in chapter 26 of 1 Samuel chapter, uh, or, or, or chapter 26 of 1 Samuel. Saul camped beside the road of the hill at Hakalah opposite Jeshimon. David was living in the wilderness and discovered Saul had come there after him. That night, David and Abishai came to the troops and Saul was lying there asleep in the inner circle of the camp with a spear struck in the ground by his head. This is the opportunity. David could just take that spear, drive it through Saul's head. It's all done. And in fact, Abishai suggested that he do just that. But that's not what David did. Look at verse 12. So David took the spear and the water jug by Saul's head and they went their way. Ha! Huh. He takes it and he leaves. Verse 13, David crossed to the other side and stood on top of the mountain at a distance. There was a considerable space between them. And he yelled this out, verse 18, why is my Lord pursuing his servant? What have I done? What crime have I committed? Here is the king's spear. Have one of the young men come over and get it. The Lord will repay every man for his righteousness and loyalty. I wasn't willing to lift my hand against the Lord's anointed, even though the Lord handed me over to you today. Here it is again. David had the opportunity to kill Saul and he doesn't do it. Two times. Instead of paying back Saul for what Saul is doing to David, David treats his enemy with honor. So what fueled this radically 
counterintuitive behavior. Well, I think we get a clue in the text a couple of times very explicitly. Look first in the first instance in chapter 24, verse number 12. Here's what David says. May the Lord judge between me and you, and may the Lord take vengeance on you for me, but my hand will never be against you. So here David is saying, I'm not going to take vengeance into my own hands. I'm going to trust the Lord to do it. And then even more plainly in chapter 26, as the Lord lives, the Lord will certainly strike him down. Either his day will come and he will die or he will go into battle and perish. However, as the Lord is my witness, I will never lift my hand against the Lord's anointed. This is such a key idea. David was simply allowing God to be the judge. He was trusting the Lord to bring about justice in his time and in his way. Essentially, David was believing the promise that God said back in the book of Deuteronomy, and it is quoted in the New Testament. Deuteronomy 32, verse number 35, vengeance belongs to me. That's God talking. I will repay. Here's the principle, friends. God is the ultimate judge. He does not need spiritual vigilantes. You say, Ryan, what do you mean by that? Well, what is a vigilante? A, a, a vigilante is somebody who seeks to bring about justice, but they do it in their own way. They go around the proper channels of authority. And, and the reason that vigilantes exist either in comic books or in real life is ultimately because they don't have confidence in the real authority to bring about justice in the way that they should. But here's the reality. We can all be vigilantes at times, can we not? If you're trying to tear people down with your words, either spoken or typed, if you're trying to make others pay for their actions by giving them the cold shoulder, if you're plotting in your heart to get even with someone, then ultimately you are doubting God is a trustworthy judge and therefore we're playing the role of vigilante. David, although he had been clearly wronged, was able to treat Saul with respect because he was trusting in the judgment of God. David did not feel the obligation to make Saul pay. Why? Because David was confident that the Lord would make Saul pay. D David was not saying justice is unimportant. What David was saying here is that it is not my role to bring it about. I am not to act as judge, jury, and executioner. My role is to point out the wrong, to point out the mistreatment, but my role is not to extract my pound of flesh. I need to leave that in the Lord's hands. What a needed reminder this is in our culture right now, where it seems that almost everyone has some enemies, particularly online. Friends, followers of Christ, should be known as people who treat others, even those who oppose them, even those who differ with them, with respect, not hate and bitterness. As the Bible says in Matthew chapter 12, verse 34, for, for from the mouth, I'm sorry, for the mouth speaks from the overflow of the heart. What comes out of your mouth is a revealer, is an indicator of your heart. Or if I could add for today's digital world, your words, even the typed ones, are an expression of your heart. Your words, 
Even the typed ones are an expression of your heart. Now, this doesn't mean that you can't have opinions, although you should carefully consider when and where you share those opinions. It doesn't mean that, that you can't feel strongly about something. It doesn't mean that you even shouldn't state your case. We'll get to that in just a moment. But what it does mean is that we should follow what our Savior told us to do. Chapter, Luke chapter 6, verse number 27. Love your enemies. Do what is good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who mistreat you. Look, trusting God to avenge frees us from seeking revenge. Trusting God to avenge frees you and I from seeking revenge. We can honor, we can respect even people that treat us poorly because ultimately we say God is the judge. We can trust that he will bring things about in his time, in his way. We will speak out we will state our opinions. We will do so in a way that honors our Savior. And we can do that because God is the ultimate judge and we are in his hands. So the first tactic is, is um, sorry, I can't remember how I put it. I'm getting there. Reduce your risk. There we go. Second tactic is respect your opponent. And number three, our third tactic is simply this. Represent your perspective. You see, trusting in the Lord to bring about his justice does not mean that we just stand there and be silent. David certainly didn't. While he encountered Saul, he plainly stated his case. In both instances, when Saul and David came together, David stated his case clearly. Look at 1 Samuel chapter 24, verse number 9. Why do you listen to the words of the people who say, look, David intends to harm you? You can see with your own eyes that the Lord handed you over to me today in the cave. Someone invited me to kill you, but I took pity on you and said, I won't lift my hand against my Lord since he is the Lord's anointed. And then again in chapter 26, David says something very similar. Why is my Lord pursuing his servant? What have I done? What crime have I committed? In other words, David clearly confronts his authority. He doesn't just kind of sit idly by when wrong is being done to him. He confronts them. He speaks the truth and tells Saul, hey man, this isn't right. You bought a lie. The things that you are saying about me, the, the ways that you are acting, they're not in accordance with the truth. This is a very important principle. David didn't say, Saul, you know what? You're right. Nor did he just kind of keep his mouth shut. He did neither of those things, but he took a third way. Let me say this very plainly. Submission does not equal silence. Those two ideas are not the same thing. That is, you can be fully submitted to your God-given authorities in your life and yet still plead your case. Isn't that what the Lord Jesus himself did in the Garden of Gethsemane? Stop and think about it for a minute. Jesus, 100%, fully submitted to the will of his father. And yet, did he just remain silent when his father was calling him to do something that he didn't relish? No, not at all. We read famously in Luke chapter 22, verse number 42, Father, this is the Lord speaking, if you are willing, take this cup away from me. So here, he's pleading his case, and yet his heart is still submitted to his father. And we see that in the next phrase, nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. 
here's the implication. You can graciously appeal to your authority. In fact, why don't you say that phrase with me? Graciously appeal. One more time. Graciously appeal. This is a tool that every follower of Jesus needs to have at the ready in their toolbox. If your boss is asking too much of you, graciously appeal. Don't gossip. If your husband is about to make a bad decision, graciously appeal. Don't get bitter. If you don't understand your parents' rules, graciously appeal. Don't complain. If a government official does something you think unwise, graciously appeal. Don't bash their character. We should be people who have the idea that, man, we can be fully submitted to the world in which God has called us to live. We can submit to the authorities that God has put in our life. That doesn't mean we agree, and it doesn't mean we have to close our mouth. We can graciously appeal. Trusting the Lord certainly never means, certainly doesn't mean never speaking up, but it does mean always extending grace. May we as followers of Jesus be known for our commitment to biblical truth. We care about the truth, our courage to speak up, and our compassion toward those even with whom we disagree. Let those words be over us. We are people of commitment, we are people of courage, and we are people of compassion. Number four, last tactic that I want to point out here from David's life is this. Realize your influence. At first glance, when you read through this text of scripture, it may seem that this whole time that David was on, a, on the run from Saul was just kind of like a waste. After all, David was supposed to be the king. He was the future king of Israel. Shouldn't he have opportunities to learn about what that meant and how to navigate and use his influence in, in very positive ways there in the palace and, and among the nobles and things like that? But that is not how David viewed it at all. Even though David could not leverage all of the influence that perhaps he deserved, he still used the influence that he had. Look at chapter 22, verse number 1. So David left Gath and took refuge in the cave of Adullam. When David's brothers and his father's whole family heard, they went down and joined him there. In addition, every man who was desperate, in debt, or discontented rallied around them, and he became their leader. About 400 men were with him. So what happens? Well, David's kind of exiled, and, and what begins to happen is all of these people begin to gather to him, and soon David is the leader of a small army. So what does David do with this limited influence that he has? Well, he leads this small army to begin to confound the enemies of Israel. This is a very important principle. Listen to this very carefully. When unable to do all that you want, simply do all that you can. When you can't do everything that you want, do everything that you can. Sometimes we find ourselves in situations where our hands are tied. Maybe uh, we, we don't have the authority or influence that we wish we did. Maybe it's a bad employer. Maybe it's a difficult relationship. Maybe it's the circumstances that we find ourselves in our life, but we're not able to leverage the full force of the influence that we desire to leverage. And we begin thinking things like this, if only I were in charge, if the situation were different. 
only, or if people would only listen to me. And we start to let these things play in our mind, play in our mind, play in our mind, so much though that they cripple us from taking any action at all. Listen to this, church. Don't allow the ideal situation to prevent you from embracing the real situation. Don't think, hey, things aren't ideal right now. Things aren't working out according to the plan that I have, the way that I want things to go. So you don't actually step in and lean into the real situation. David, man, think about this for a moment. He thought that he was going to, on the fast track to kingship, basically. He'd been anointed by the prophet Samuel. God had chosen him. All of a sudden, he has propelled from the, from the shepherd to the court of Saul, and then he's leading troops and army. He's victorious in battle. And then all of a sudden, what happens? It seems like the wheels fall off. And David gets thrown out of his position of influence, his position of power, and put back on the run in the wilderness. It's like he's worse off than at this point than when he even started. He could have just gone out there and moped around and said, woe is me, Saul is treating me unfairly. But instead, in faith, David embraced his circumstances and did what he could for the people and the glory of God. He said, you know what? I don't have all the influence that I might like, but I do have some influence. And I'm going to realize what that is, and I'm going to leverage all that I have for the kingdom and glory of God. I don't know what the situation you find yourself in. I know all of us, in some sense, in the, in the season that we live in, feel like our hands are tied feels like we can't do all that we want. That doesn't mean you can't do anything. Embrace the opportunity that the Lord has given you and submit to the authority that is in our life. And one of those authorities right now is just, is just simply the current pandemic status that we're living in. Don't quit. Don't take your ball and go home. Don't say I can't do anything meaningful. Look for ways where you can serve others and leverage the influence that you have even in this unique and unusual season. So here's the reality. You will suffer. You will be mistreated in one way or another by someone in a position of authority in your life. It is going to happen. But as we've seen through this portion of David's life, we are given some clear strategies how we can respond in a God-honoring way. But here's the question I ask after hearing all of this. Even though we know this is the right thing to do, to respond like David, to remove ourselves from the situation if necessary, to respect even our opponents, to, to leverage the opportunities that the Lord has given us. Even though we understand that those are the right strategies to come about, here's the question I find myself asking. How am I going to do that? What's going to give me the strength to act in such a counterintuitive, countercultural way? How am I going to obey commands like leave room for God's wrath? or turn the other cheek, or bless those who curse. I just don't know if it's in me to act in such a radical way. How am I going to do that? Well, the answer, as I hope you've come to expect if you've been around Gospel Hope very long, it is this. It is found in the work of Jesus Christ on behalf of sinners. You say, what do you mean by that? Well, look over in 1 Peter chapter 2. You see, David certainly was a victim of injustice, but there is one who suffered an even greater injustice, and his name is Jesus. Look at verse number 22. He, speaking of Christ, did not commit sin, 
and no deceit was found in his mouth. When he was insulted, he did not insult in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but entrusted himself to the one who judges justly. So even though Jesus was completely innocent, he was free from all wrongdoing. And even though he had every right to take vengeance, what did Christ do? Rather, he entrusted himself to God to say, Father, you bring about vengeance. You bring about justice in your time, in your way, and I can rest in your hands. So why did Jesus do that? What propelled Jesus to say, I'm going to suffer unjustly in this moment? Look again at the text, verse number 24. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree. So there's the act of suffering that Jesus undertook on our behalf. So that, super important words, so that, it's telling us why he did it, having died to sins, so Jesus died to sins, we might live for righteousness. Did you see how the pronoun changed right there? Jesus died to sin so that his people, you and I, might live for righteousness. You see, part of the reason while Jesus suffered unjustly the way that he did was to show his people that it could be done. That's actually what it explicitly says in the preceding verse. Look at verse number 21 of 1 Peter chapter 2. Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example that you should follow in his steps. Jesus bore injustice so that we could bear it too. Now, as I've already said, that doesn't mean we're silent. That doesn't mean that we don't speak out. That doesn't mean that we don't leverage the influence that we have. We do all of those things. But at the end of the day, Jesus suffered for us so that we could follow his example. Our Savior knew that in this fallen world, his people would inevitably encounter mistreatment. So out of his abundant love for us, he suffered the greatest mistreatment of all time in, in, in part to show us that it would be all right, that we could bear it, that we could stand up under it. In a couple of years, I, I remember kind of a great example of this. Uh, my kids were at the dentist not the greatest suffering of all time, but for some of you, it is an event of terror. And, and two of my kids, Geneva and Peyton, they're pretty close to the same age, were getting their teeth cleaned. And if you've seen that before or been in a dentist chair before, it can be a scary experience for a little kid and there's the sounds and the tools and all of this. And I remember Peyton being pretty nervous about it. So Geneva got in the chair first and they did it, zzz, all the sounds and all the water and that terrible sound that they make. And then after it was done, Peyton's still a little nervous, but Geneva looked over at Peyton and she said something like this, like, hey, Peyton, I'm okay. If I went through it, you can go through it too. And I think in an infinitely greater way, this is what our Lord is saying to us. In this world, you will have trouble. Things are tough. Things are difficult. My people, you will suffer terribly. But I died on your behalf, not only to take you to heaven one day, but to give you endurance, to give you strength, to bear up even when life is hard. 
And if the injustice, if the mistreatment even takes your life, there is nothing, there is nothing that can separate you from my love. I don't know, apart from the work of Jesus, how people could bear suffering with a hope-filled way. Only because of Jesus does our suffering, does our difficulty, does our mistreatment have meaning because we know at the end of the day, Jesus Christ has delivered us from the greatest suffering of all by laying down his life on behalf of his people. Oh, brothers and sisters, let's be people that follow in the steps of our Savior. That doesn't mean we're silent. That doesn't mean we don't speak up. That doesn't mean we don't leverage our influences. But it does mean that at the end of the day, like the words of Scripture say, we entrust ourselves, mind, body, and soul, into the hand of him who judges justly. Say, Pastor Ryan, I'm, I'm with you. I want to entrust myself to Jesus. I want to trust Christ even when my life is hard. How do I do that? Let me give you just two very short and very practical suggestions. The first one is this, pray for your authorities. I mean, the Bible calls us to do this. And I have found it is very difficult, at least in my heart, to maintain like bitterness and anger towards somebody that I'm consistently praying for. So I would encourage you, pray for the authorities in your life. Maybe you have great authorities in your life and that's awesome, pray for them. But I would encourage you, pray for those who are most difficult for you to love and ask God to help you not to agree with them, not to just toe the line and do everything they say, but to submit to them in such a way that is honoring to the Lord, uh, where you are entrusting yourself into the hands of the Lord. Pray for your authorities. The second thing I would say is this, pray for opportunities. As I said a few minutes ago, we're, we're in a season where it seems like all of our opportunities are limited. I know I feel that. How can I minister? How can I, how can I use the influence that I have right now? Why don't you begin to pray that God would make it clear what path you're to take, even in this time of strange, unusual circumstances? Let's be a church that simply prays, Lord, we pray for our authorities. We pray for opportunities to leverage whatever influence that you've given us in this moment. Let's be people who, though maybe we're fugitives, we're strangers in a hostile country. The real king hasn't assumed the throne yet. We are living as aliens and citizens of another world. Let's be people who, even in the midst of that, like our Savior, entrust ourselves into the hand of him who judges justly. Let's pray together. Oh, Father, would you help us to be people who interact with our authorities, even when we disagree, even when they're wrong in ways that honor you. Help us to follow our Savior. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.